0: For residents of Malticino in Italy's Tuscany region, Gianfranco Soldera was likely a recognizable face, especially if you were at all connected to the wine industry. Gabriele Gurelli has a clear image of Gianfranco wearing a white
1: shirt, suspenders. And then a very specific hat, which we call basco.
0: This was Gianfranco Soldera's winemaker uniform, essentially.
1: But I always saw him on his way in the morning when I was going to school and he was stopping by the bakery every day I saw him.
0: Doesn't that just feel so Italian from where I'm sitting? In Seattle, it certainly does. You're strolling down cobblestone streets on your way to school and you just see one of Italy's most prestigious winemakers casually buying the day's bread.
1: To me, it is a very clear image, the, the image of Gianfranco. It has always been a character. You cannot deny that the character of Gianfranco Soldera was very well known.
0: Well known indeed. He had strident opinions on how to make a proper Brunello di Montalcino, And he would perfect every detail at his winery, Casabasse. He rarely bit his tongue unless he was talking about the superior quality of his own wine production. A Grub Street article from The Times said, he maybe kinda needed to be put in his place. So just imagine the shock on his face on December 3rd, 2012, when he opened his cellar door to discover puddles of blood red wine. Large oak casks had been intentionally opened. More than 16,000 gallons of Italy's premier wine rushed down the drain, left to mix with the sewer.
2: I think within two days, the whole wine world knew about it.
3: When something like this happens, it has this kind of like 700 to 1,000 year echo.
1: If you want to damage someone, you let him lose what was the most valuable thing that he had.
0: Overnight, Gianfranco Sildera lost six years of vintages from 2007 to 2012. The wine was worth $25 million at the time. $25 million, the result of years of hard work, had all disappeared forever. What would motivate someone to do this? Rumors instantly raced around Italy and the rest of the world was this connected to the mafia? Was this retaliation against Gianfranco's hard-nosed opinions on wine? Or was this a more personal vendetta? Well, listeners, the answers are Vinfamous. You're listening to Vinfamous, a podcast from wine Enthusiast. We uncork tales of envy, greed, and opportunity. I'm your host, Ashley Smith. This crime at face value is quite straightforward. The vats were opened and the wine was poured out, simple. It just so happened that this wine was some of the most expensive wine in Italy. And, oh yeah, it looked like the Bese winery was intentionally targeted. Police quickly recognized this as vandalism. The perpetrator or perpetrators didn't steal any of this expensive wine which at the time was being sold for a range of 250 to 350 US dollars per bottle. Any suggestions of a mafia connection were quickly waved off as unrealistic. And honestly, that's kind of a stereotypical assumption, don't you think? There were no signs of extortion or blackmail. So to understand why someone would destroy more than 16,000 gallons of his fine wine, let's try and understand Gianfranco Soldera. And let's start with how he created his legendary winery, Bese. Before winemaking, Gianfranco Soldera made his money working in the insurance business in Milan. In 1972, he and his wife, Graziella, moved to Malticino in search of the ideal location for a winery. If you've never heard of Malticino, just draw a line about 67 miles south of Florence, Italy, and you'll land on this hilltop town. A 14th century medieval fortress sits in the center of this town. If you climb up the fortress's watchtower, you'll see sweeping views of gentle rolling hills. This is a small town with a population of around 5,000. You could say it's off the beaten path.
1: So Montalcino is an hilltop town. So it's rather a hilly but gentle hills. And it's all olive, cypresses, and vineyards, of course. It, it's it's a very complicated land.
0: This is Gabriele Gorelli. He was born and raised in Montalcino. We heard his voice at the beginning, talking about how he saw Gianfranco every day on his way to school. Actually, way back in the 1970s, Gabriele's grandparents hosted Gianfranco in their Multicino home. This was way back when the aspiring winemaker first moved to the region and was scoping out locations to set up a winery.
1: So Gianfranco had the idea to buy in, in a very specific place, which is halfway the hill, still rather high in, in altitude, and it was a place that I was already known for producing very, very nice wines. He didn't want to be, but he was an actual ambassador for Montalcino. He, he has done so many things in the direction of raising the perception of Montalcino's image around the world.
0: Gabriele is one of 415 masters of wine in the world. On top of that, he's the only master of wine from Italy. It's a very significant distinction.
1: It is said that uh, there are more people that went to the outer space compared to the ones that passed the master of wine exam, which is true. Actually, you can fact check it on on Google.
0: (laughs) It is true. More than 600 people have been to outer space. As a master of wine, he says he spreads the gospel of Italian wine, doing presentations and tastings, and luckily for us, talking to podcasters interested in understanding why it was such a big deal that someone sabotaged Gianfranco's wine. And when we're talking about the wine in Montalcino, we're specifically talking about Brunello.
1: Brunello in Montalcino is a synonym for Sangiovese.
0: To make Brunello according to the historic tradition and by Italian law, the wine producer must only use the Sangiovese grape varietal. Gabriele says this grape was selected early on for its color, a deep brownish red, like the color of blood, for use in particular in religious ceremonies.
1: One of the things that I call the pillars of Brunello is having decided to produce this wine only with Sangiovese. So we're talking 100%. No other variety could go inside a Brunello di Montalcino. And this is historically very strong.
0: Gabriele says the second pillar of Brunello is that it needs to be aged at least two years. However, Gianfranco would age his wines for at least
1: five years. Sangiovese used to be rather tannic is rather angular in the first phases of its youth. And therefore, they needed to keep it in the barrels for long. And that's the other pillar of Brunello.
0: Gianfranco Soldera had a clear and exacting vision for Brunello. He saw this wine as being on par with fine wines from Bordeaux and Burgundy. However, not everyone saw it this way. And he was not afraid of ruffling feathers of the people who say used non-traditional barrels to age their wine. He told the New York Times, if a wine producer uses a non-traditional barrel, it's, quote, because he has bad wine without tannins. Ouch. He also would hold his winemaking neighbors in Monticino accountable to the standards that he saw for the region. He was connected to a scandal in 2008 that the Italian press called Brunello Poli, Italian authorities indicted multiple leading Brunello producers for doing none other than blending unauthorized grapes into their wines. He was rumored to have been the whistleblower. And to be clear, these were just rumors. But Gianfranco was a man of strong convictions, to say the
1: least. It not only had high standards, but he had great convictions. So he really had belief. So when you have belief, Mm, you are not in a position that you want to change, but you really feel it. From the outside, I, I could really, really tell that that he was um, such a focus, such convinced and committed to, to producing very high level of wine in his own way, not the, I'd say, textbook way.
0: His own way, not
1: the textbook way.
0: Back in the 1970s, when he was establishing his winery, the trend was to industrialize the winemaking process. The more human intervention, the better. Not at Cazabese. The Cazabese winery to this day is described as a, quote, botanic park.
1: And I think in this case, uh, the passion of his wife was paramount because she wanted to have these things, not only functionally beautiful, but beautiful in the sense of aesthetics.
0: There's a lush garden filled with roses that invites bees and other pollinators. Beehives make their home on the estate. He banished the use of cement, instead making walls of stone held together by mesh wire. All of the natural elements complement each other in form and function. And there's no pesticides. It's a bit of a damn modernity approach. He only produces 10,000 bottles per year because his approach is so time and labor intensive.
1: It is a microcosm. And Franco was very attentive to, to what was happening. And, uh, you know, he was coming from uh, the north of Italy, he was coming from industrialization in the middle of, you know, the, the roaring, I would say, 70s. I would put him in, you know, in the early vanguard
2: in the 70s and 80s of this person of low intervention.
0: That's Jeff Porter, one of wine enthusiasts, Italian wine reviewers, and a sommelier. Jeff,
3: you should start first because your career is longer and more illustrious than mine. I thought
2: you were going to say it's because I'm I'm older.
3: Well, that Um, was a nice (laughs) way of saying that. (laughs) (laughs) And that's
0: Danielle Caligari. She also reviews Italian wines for wine enthusiasts and is an assistant professor at Dartmouth College, specializing in Italian literature, food and beverage.
2: He was early on in the 80s of like pulling leaves to get more sun exposure, kind of shaping the canopy, which today in a lot of biodynamic practice, and a lot of kind of more progressive kind of agriculture that is like, you don't do that anymore. But again, it's, it's just every step, every movement in the vineyard, every movement in the winery had intention and had purpose, and that got to the result. His processes, it's interesting, it's not unique among the great producers,
3: He's neither a traditionalist nor a modernist, right? He is not trying to reject one school in favor of another. He's doing what is, right, as though, like, you can use gravity to make wine, right? (laughs) Like, let, let everything fall into place as physics desires it to, and it will naturally be its best self.
2: From the the sommelier perspective and the people that sell the wine, he was ultimately respected. He was at the top of the pyramid of Italian wine. Everybody, there's not one person that disagreed. Or If I ever met a person that didn't like their wine, I honestly, really, genuinely can't think of a person that didn't try the wine and sat back and was like, wow, that's, that's really, really good. He was very respected by a lot of the producers. And, you know, I think a few of the producers just he maybe came off to them in a certain way because he would be like, uh you know my wine is the best in the cultural context there's that quiet boasting is okay but like in italy if you really go for it's like i i'm i'm the best shit there is everybody's like Oh, come on this guy and i i think that may have uh pissed off a few people but you know he stuck to his guns and there's there's a lot of people that followed his his method and then use him as an inspiration to today so that's i think that's the, that's the beauty of soldare
0: his exacting specificity extended to the tasting room, too. He would bring his own wine glasses to restaurants. He wouldn't allow anyone to spit out the wine after a tasting. Because to him, wine was meant to be enjoyed and experienced.
1: And yes, you could not spit. No, that's not a, an option. It's about, you know, the value that you give to the wine itself.
0: Jeff Porter says he prepared for three years to host a wine dinner with John Franco himself.
2: I had the fortune when I was the wine director at Del Posto to have John Franco Soldera at Del Posto for a wine dinner where we tried 30 vintages of Soldera. So I put that in the top three wine events of my entire career to be with him side by side, pouring the wines, having him ship his own wine glasses that everybody had to use. And uh, having 20 guests at Del Posto enjoy that experience, it, it, it blew my mind. It was amazing.
0: I mean, that sounds <laughs> incredible. And I know that's like part of, of the lore is like you have to drink it out of certain glasses. You said you tried 30. Were you allowed to, to spit them out? Or? Oh,
2: no, 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 no. I mean, he looked at he's like, you're going to drink these, right? I was like, of course I am. <laughs> I was blitzed at the end. I'm surprised I got the wine in the glasses. <laughs>
0: Jeff was able to see a different side of John Franco when he was in the flow of hosting the tasting dinner. When you go to to wineries, you warn
2: guests, you're like, you know, don't look them in the eye. Say, yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. They need only the green M&Ms. And then he got there. He was a jovial, kind, wanted to ask me questions, interested in me. And with the guests, he engaged in conversation, even though he didn't speak English. We had his translator there and... It, it was one of those things where i was like wow i mean like he doesn't seem very uh, you know acerbic everybody was like reverent but he he was super enjoyable to be around so that was the beauty of it what made his wines special i think was him his attention to detail the uncompromising nature of what his vision was and i think when you look at the best wines in the entire world that's a common thread across all of them and Obviously, his terroir was great, but his his work and dedication in the vineyard and from the vineyard into the cellar, from the cellar into the bottle, from the bottle to the market, there was no shortcut ever taken. And um, I love that. I I love that, that he was so dogged in that approach. And the wines are ethereal. Like in old age, they age like any other Sangiovese, but with this lithe and almost sprightly, breath to them at 30 years old.
0: So each bottle of Gianfranco's Brunello contained hours upon hours upon hours of labor from him and his employees. Hearing all of this, how Franco would painstakingly cultivate the ideal environment from first grape to final pour, it added another layer of complexity to the blood-red wine puddling up in the cellar plus casabesse only releases 10,000 bottles per year this is very small compared to other high end wine producers
2: so like mouton rothschild so first growth bordeaux they make about 40,000 cases of wine and that's you know a, a four digit figure upon release and then within italy antonori makes you know millions of bottles he is at 10,000 bottles a year you're very very small
0: So how did the equivalent of 80,000 bottles of this fine wine end up circling the drain left to mingle with Malticino's sewage? More after this short break. The news of the destruction of wine bounced around Malticino and quickly it was the only thing the international wine world was talking about. Gabriele was in Italy at the time when he heard the news and he didn't know what to think of it.
1: So we hadn't any real idea whether this was true. or was a a prank. Mr. Sodera never wanted people to spit his own wine, but only to enjoy and to absorb it in its entirety. He had his own big, beautiful Gabrielo to barrels emptied in a few hours' time. So this this is super difficult to think about to me.
0: This was difficult for the whole community of six thousand people.
1: And you know, the population here was shocked. You have to imagine that in Montalcino there are two hundred and twenty-five estates. So pretty much everyone works for. Uh, by or <laughs> I mean it's it's an entire system. You cannot avoid working wine in Montalcino. No, therefore it was a real shock for the population as a whole.
0: Danielle Caligari was living in Tuscany at the time. She saw the historical echoes of regional identities and how the story played out in newspapers.
3: The news was not important just at a level of what it meant to the wine world, but it was very much like. Huskin news it was a piece of a puzzle that was much larger than that because obviously these areas have very long interrelated histories and so the personal element of something like that also then had these like ripple effects on what it meant to invade someone's space in this territory that has a long history And so when something like this happens, it has this kind of like 700 to a thousand year echo of where those people, how they interacted, what their products, which represent them, mean to them. And how the idea of somebody taking that away or destroying that is um, placed, you know, couched in that much deeper context.
2: I think within
0: two days, the whole wine world knew about it. Jeff Porter again. At the time, he was the wine director at Del Posto, the restaurant, and he had a much more practical reaction.
2: I just remember like going like, oh God, the wine's gonna get that much more expensive. Uh, That that was my first thing. I was like, oh shit, now I can't, can't drink it. And like my Psalms were like, raise the prices today.
0: The local and international wine communities speculated revenge as the motive. Revenge for what?
1: And then, speaking about how Mr. Sodera interacted with uh, his people and people around, the general idea uh, started to coalesce around the fact that it might have been harsh to someone, or it might have been a sort of an argument, a discussion with somebody, and this have been resulted in, you know, such a... Incident or sabotage, as you want to call it. Which was the actual uh, motivation for that.
0: Myth and gossip made way for facts when police arrested the vandal on December 20th, 2012. Andrea DiGisi was a 39-year-old fed-up employee of Bese, Soldera's wine label. Well, former employee, I should say. Investigators arrested him for breaking a window to get into the cellar. He opened the valves of 10 barrels, destroying the product of more than six years of hard work. Italian newspapers dubbed him the Brunello Killer. Gabriele Garelli knew Andrea through life in Multicino.
1: And, you know, as oftentimes it happens when when you hear about these sorts of things and you interview people that knew the guy that did something, they always say, oh, the guy was super peaceful, super tranquil. I need to say the same thing. I need to say the same thing.
0: Andrea had a few gripes with the Casabase winery and with John Franco in particular.
1: This guy had this argument with Mr. Soldera about the fact that another guy, a colleague of him, was given the apartment he wanted to live in, in the Casabase winery.
2: Is really pissed off about being fired and he claims he was fired for mishandling a barrel which is a giant no-no in the cellar because he doesn't have a lot of wines the barrels are gigantic so they hold a lot of wine so if you misclean it you can in, you know induce a bacterial infection that that bacterial infection can spread really rapidly through the winery and John Franco Soldero is very very like strict about you know care with it like we we're talking about earlier.
0: Italian investigators reportedly tapped Andrea's phone and heard him talking about rinsing wine out of his clothes. Wine particles were then found in his clothing via a lab test. It sounds like this was the only thing Multicino was talking about.
1: This guy, after having done this sabotage, supposedly like you know, early uh, mid afternoon, he went he didn't change himself can you imagine that opening all these valves having this tsunami coming into the floor of the winery and not changing your clothes after having done that i mean you have been navigating into a a sea of wine no and he went to the bar and like nothing happened but people was a bit surprised and what was the funny thing is that the bar he went to is like across the road from the carabinieri, from the police station. So it's a, Oh my gosh. I think it, what he wanted is just to do the sabotage. He didn't care about what the consequence could have been after that. No, it's just, you know, I'm doing that. And it was like blinded by this rage.
0: After this incident, Soldera had much less wine to sell. He lost six vintages in the sabotage. Remember, Cazabese only produces 10,000 bottles per year. That is a huge financial loss, not only for Cazabese, but for the larger community as well. In fact, this destruction led to a 10 million euro commercial loss for the whole region. The community of winemakers stepped in to help. The Consorzio del Vino Brunello di Molticino, or the Consortium of Brunello di Molticino Wine in English, calls themselves a free association of winemakers who produce Brunello di Molticino. These types of consortios are common in Italy, and they play a role in regulating the quality of wine. The consortio shared what seemed to be a generous offering. They offered to share their grape harvest to create a blended wine. But Soldera publicly refused their help. In one day, two major things happened. First, Andrea, the disgruntled former employee, was sentenced to four years in prison. And second, Soldera issued a statement saying he was resigning from the consortio.
3: If you think of yourself as an artist, you don't take somebody else's art and sign it, and you're not going to just take somebody else's version of the thing that you care so much about and pass it off as your own, because that's as good as, you know, as somebody giving him a couple thousand apples and saying, here, sell these instead.
2: I think the intention from the consortium was actually really, really nice, but I think he took it as like, wait, you want me to bottle your wine as soldera that's insulting to my, the people who know soldera. So he took it from my understanding Kind of like, why- how dare you? You know, you know I have this wine insured. I don't need your pity. I don't need your money.
0: This perceived insult appeared to be the final straw after decades of fiery opinions on the proper way to make a world-class Brunello.
2: He was like, screw you guys. I'm out. I don't need you. I don't need the moniker Brunello de Montalcino anymore. I'm Soldera. And may- that's probably been in his head for a long time, but I think that was probably the kicker. But it's interesting that... It- there's a, a quote I saw that the president of the consortium at the time was like, well, screw you. How do you have wine all of a sudden? What are you like where Jesus turned water into wine? He basically said that to John Franco and that kind of cemented John Franco, giving uh, the consortium the, the proverbial middle finger.
0: He continued to produce fine Brunellos under his Casabese label, even though he left the Consortio. Since the incident effectively reduced supply of his product, the price jumped even higher.
2: John Franco's, one of his biggest worries, and this is this is my biggest worry in the world of wine today, is the access to, to normal people getting to try the wine. But with this loss of wine, that many fewer people will get to try it, get to understand, have the opportunity. I mean, if you see Sildera on a list now, it's, it's always four digits. And then you see it on an auction. It's, it's, it's really expensive. It's out, of, it's out of reach for most people.
0: More than 10 years after this act of vandalism, what is the legacy of this incident? The perpetrator has since been released from prison. John Franco passed away in 2019. He was 82. He died after experiencing a heart attack while driving, his family now operates the Besse Winery. For Jeff Porter, Gianfranco's legacy is found in the confidence of traditional Italian winemakers.
2: So in my experience with being like a, a Somalia focused on Italian wine, they're always mentioning Burgundy or Bordeaux or we want to be like this, we want to be like that. And it truly isn't until recently where the... I feel that the Italian producers are are much more confident in their wines and in themselves to not have to necessarily always look Northwest or like over their shoulders being like, Oh, what are the French doing? And I think John Franco Soldera was one of the, the, the people who led the way through making great wine that he didn't have to look anywhere else. He didn't have to compare himself to anybody. And he was, one, he was at the vanguard to teach other producers that if you do this, just be yourself, make great wine, show off Sangiovese or whatever your native grape is where you are, make the best that you can and show the place. And it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks.
0: Gabriele Gorelli says the incident reminds us why we drink intentionally produced fine wine.
1: This incident uh, really brought to the surface the values that are connected to the brands we drink, not only every day, but the brands we like. What I mean is that we do like Soldera not only because of what the wine looks and tastes in the glass, but we do like Soldera for the message it gave. This idea to go against the, the flow anytime, every time. Many people do buy Soldera because they, they feel it. They might not be able to drink it on a regular basis, but they really feel it. And perhaps we should savor every sip. So every vintage is unique. Every barrel was unique. And these, we're not going to get these things back because these are down the drain.
0: That's all for this week's episode of Vinfamous, a podcast by Wine Enthusiast. Join us next time for the final episode of the season, where we unravel the mysteries of a burglary ring in Napa Valley. Find Vinfamous on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen, and follow the show so you never miss a scandal. Vinfamous is produced by Wine Enthusiast in partnership with Pod People, Special thanks to our production team, Derek Apoor, Samantha Setty, and the team at Pod People. Anne Fuse, Matt Sav, Amy Machado, Ashton Carter, Danielle Roth, Shanice Tyndall, and Carter Wogan.